and welcome to the Science of Fiction on CAMFM. Today we're joined by Ivan Scales. Hello. Hello there. And uh, you're a political ecologist and environmental geographer. That's right. What's one of them? <laughs> right. Um, where do we go? Well, I guess another way of putting it is that uh, I'm an accidental geographer. So that might be a, a way of describing where I arrived at. Uh, I started off, my first degree was uh, in ecological science. Uh, I was an undergrad up in Durham. And uh, I ended up going via a Master's in Anthropology to a PhD in Geography. And uh, I'm a, I'm a flavour of geographer called a, a political ecologist. And what we're interested in is understanding land use, environmental change, environmental degradation. But the fact is that w we like to focus on our politics and economics. So a, a lot of people look to demography, population growth, technology to explain environmental impacts. We prefer to focus on political and economic factors. So that's political ecology in a nutshell. So people and how they interact really, rather than what they're using. Yeah, uh, uh, we're going to talk uh, hopefully a bit later on about uh, ideas of people like Thomas Malthus and, and Neo Malthus and ideas of environmental degradation. And um, I think those sorts of ideas and those sorts of explanations tend to dominate the way that a lot of people think about environmental degradation. There's too many people using too many resources. And uh, and that's fine, and, and that's true up to a certain level. But actually, I think if we look to a lot of environmental impacts, um, there are other more complex political and economic factors that help to explain particular forms of pollution, particular forms of degradation. So, for example, my own research on deforestation in Madagascar, uh, which was uh, what I focused on during my PhD, showed that actually rather than being migration or population growth, uh, a lot of the big booms in forest loss were due to cash crops and, and other broader political and economic fa factors. Um, so that's what we tend to focus on. And we presume you've seen these same effects back home in the UK because we get political effects in Europe then pushing us to do different uh, policies which will then cause us to use different fuels or different resources. Like nuclear sometimes is popular, sometimes isn't, but that has a big environmental impact. Right. Um, for example, if you look at uh, what's driven are a lot of environmental impacts over the last 50 years uh, in, 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 more in the global north has been a, a huge increase in the intensity of resource consumption. So again, if we want to understand that, we have to move to more cultural, political, economic factors to better understand why and how people consume natural resources. So that, that, that's what we're trying to do. Now I just feel horrendously guilty for driving here when you cycled here. Yes, I'm afraid I think a lot of the songs that we're going to listen to, do, uh, to today have got a... Uh, <laughs> they're fairly downbeat. <laughs> I, I tried to find something upbeat. I failed miserably. I think we've got one song coming up that's more upbeat in tempo. So hopefully that'll but, help to lift spirits a bit. But not in mood. Anyway, Not that, in mood, exactly. With that, we'll go straight into our first track. <laughs> Fish full of mercury. Oh, oh, 
listening to the science of fiction on cam fm and that was mercy mercy me and by the villagers uh so that was your choice ivan um do you want to tell us about it why did i choose this song well f- first of all i love the original uh marvin gay original mercy mercy me uh released in uh, i think it was late 60s or early 70s and uh well really it, it captures what we've just been talking about uh what about this overcrowded land how much more abuse from man can she stand and uh, it reminds me of of that 1960s 70s environmentalism people uh, like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring uh, Paul and Anne Ehrlich's book The Population Bomb very influential in kickstarting western environmentalism in the 60s and 70s and um, I came to environmentalism a little bit later. I'm not a child of the 60s <laughs> and 70s. Uh, You're looking very useful. You thank are. you very much. Uh, came at it uh, in, the, in the 1990s. Um, member of Friends of the Earth. I was president of Durham University Friends of the Earth as, a, as, a, as an undergraduate. And um, I chose it because because of that, because it, it symbolises that 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 um, growing environmental awareness in response to to big environmental problems emerging in the sixties and seventies, things like DDTs uh, in agriculture, uh, poisoning watercourses, and that that environmental awareness. And um, I like it also has a certain innocence about it um, there's, there's a track hopefully that we'll play later on that, that uh, is a little bit more cynical about the politics of environmentalism and this is back when environmentalism I think was a, a little bit more clear cut we had the, the big environmental problems 
I think DDTs and, and after that CFCs. And um, there was a sort of simplicity about them in the sense that we knew what the problem was and uh, therefore what the solution was. I think with something like climate change, it's so big, it's so intractable, it's so complicated that uh, it makes it that much more contested and, and that much more difficult to think how we might actually solve it. So that's why I think it's going to be, in a way, the, the, one of the cheeriest songs that... Um, we get to play today in the sense that I think it symbolizes an kind of yes as a, a much more simple time in environmentalism it is quite interesting you're talking about how you were a child of the 60s and the 70s but of course growing up for me in the 80s is how many children's cartoons were based on the idea that the kids had to save the world and it, it was a lot of environmental things obviously the most famous one Captain Planet he's our hero yeah and it, there was this massive pressure on my age group to say that well we're all rubbish, our gener the generation who is teaching us. But you know, you've got to come along and do better. And yes, I remember Blue Peter, Blue Peter environmental recycling programs. They're always good for their um, schemes to try and encourage us to recycle more. And I remember one of the things I did. Uh, it was eleven or twelve. I came up with a, an ecological cartoon um, to try and convince people to recycle more. They were running a competition. I didn't win it. <laughs> uh, those are my first baby steps as a, as a 12, 13-year-old into environmentalism and into, into environmental geography. We should try and track down that winner and see if they've done <laughs> Yes, what have they done with their lives? <laughs> what have they done after that? <laughs> Tremendous prize in Blue Peter Badge. Um, no, I mean, I mean, the world has changed because I... I'm amazed that we have you know millions of bins now to put stuff in, and very little goes into the black bin in my house. The only thing goes in there is nappies, I think, and you know. So clearly, we, the world has started to listen to these effects. It um, has, but I, I think again, going back to what I was saying about the the big ones like climate change, I, I think in a way the, the recycling and the reusing are, are the low hanging fruit. Um, they don't require radical changes to the way that we live or to the way that we consume resources. Uh, and and um, I think that, that's, that's what becomes much more difficult. Well, uh, it's a sad reality that the, po the residential population isn't actually the problem, is it? The people living in the houses recycling is a very small touch of the iceberg of all the industrial and all the... Of everything that we do. Yeah. Um, and you think, that you think of, of our, our, our individual carbon footprints and, and uh, how... Uh, all the activities that we do on a day-to-day -day basis, the, the, the carbon footprint's embedded in those things. And um, that's why, I mean, I'm an environmental geographer. I work mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, so I take a, I take a lot of flights <laughs> and uh, I have massive carbon guilt as a result. Okay, can you pay that off? Is that <laughs> that guilt offset? I mean, you can offset the carbon. I'm not sure if you can, uh, if you can offset the guilt. Be nice but, to some people in Sahara when you're there. Yes, exactly. But take some, I don't know what they want over there. What, what, decent chocolate. Um... So, I mean, got in the show notes here, uh, I mentioned about uh, Malthusian theory and Neo-Malthusian theory. Uh, I, I, as a non-geographer and non-environmentalist, do you want to explain a bit of that? Yes. So, Thomas Malthus, who uh, he wrote, he wrote a famous essay in, in the late 18th century, and um, it has a very catchy title, as I think a lot of academic work did in the, in the uh, 18th and 19th century. So he wrote a, an essay on the principle of population as it affects the future improvement of society with remarks on the speculations of Mr. Godwin, Mr. Condorcet and other writers. So it's good. He's, he's being rigorous and citing his sources. Uh, so that's good. No, no plagiarism there. Um, and Did he like those guys? That's the question. <laughs> well, it was a response. They were, they were, they were other economists. Um, he, he's an interesting character, Thomas Malthus. He, he, he's the reverent Thomas Malthus. Uh, and he was he was writing at a time when uh, agriculture was struggling to increase productivity, and and his essay argued that there were two fundamental forces. 
First of all, there was agricultural productivity, which he, he, he thought would only increase in a linear fashion. So imagine if we have a, a graph, it would go up in a straight line. And he said that, that was because of the law of diminishing returns. So up to a point, you can add extra fertilizers, extra labor, and your unit of land will produce more food. So we can intensify that way, or we can extensify, we can put more land under production. But there's a limit to that process and you get to a process and you can't do that anymore. So that's one force. And, and then he had another force and he had a very quaint phrase for that. He, he called it the passion of the sexes. Uh, this is the 18th century, remember. And, I'm not uh, expecting equality here. No, uh, what, what he meant by that was that uh, he thought it was our propensity to, to reproduce. Uh, and he said that that was another fundamental force of nature that, that couldn't really be controlled. And uh, therefore, the inevitable conclusion of this was people would carry on having kids, more kids than, than they could support. And eventually, that force would lead to exponential population growth. So you have a linear arithmetic resource base, uh, a, a, a geometric exponential resource consumption due to population growth. And he said, therefore, the inevitable conclusion would be populations would outgrow uh, their resource base and you'd get famine and, uh, and war and disease and, and these population checks. So he wasn't a very cheery fellow, well, um, uh, our it, Reverend Malthus. It's what you bring that up because that's exactly because I do a talk on chemistry and I think of a harbour process which is how we get fertilising today yeah. and one of the things in the history of that is Crookes made a speech just before the turn of the would have been the 20th century and he basically opened it with the phrase England and all civilised nations stand in deadly peril and that was exactly on the thing he just didn't believe we could feed the world mm. because there wasn't enough fertiliser and right. that was the end of that talk is saying that we needed to invent a chemical process to make fertilizer. Yeah, uh, the harbour process is fascinating. I, I can't remember the exact statistic, but um, someone worked out that it, it accounts for, for, for millions of, if not tens or hundreds of millions of people on, alive on Earth. I think it's one third of the world population. Right, and um, I mean, of course that, that was the big problem, and it's one of the reasons that, in a way, Malthus was wrong, is he underestimated technology's ability uh, to to improve food production. So, in fact, he, he saw population as being dependent on agriculture. And then Esther Bosarab, actually, in the 1960s, flipped that argument on its head and said that actually that, that agriculture is dependent is the dependent variable, right? So, so what happens is that agriculture will change in response to population growth. And that's exactly what we saw. So with the harbour process and, and able to, being able to fix atmospheric nitrogen, uh, we were able to massively increase the, the productive capacity of a lot of agricultural land. And that, that 40s and 50s, the, the birth of what we'd call the agro-industrial model of food production really helped to feed millions, if not hundreds of millions of people. It had some ecological downsides. Yes. Uh, so maybe Malthus wasn't wrong. <laughs> and then the point is that, that in the 1960s, people like Paul Ehrlich, writing his book, The Population Bomb, pointed out that actually it's not just food that, that limits or potentially limits societal growth. There are actually other factors. We are, we are dependent on a broader set of uh, ecological resources. And uh, his argument was that, and with his wife, was that those would be the things that would be our downfall. And he was, um, he was pretty strong about it. I, I've got a quote here from his book, so The Population Bomb, which was published in 1968. And he said, uh, we need compulsory birth regulation. And he suggested possibly through the addition of temporary sterilants to water supplies or staple food. Doses of the antidote would be carefully rationed by the government to produce the desired family size. Uh, and this is, not, this is not a fiction book. And we're going to talk about uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World later. This was not fiction. This was his, his policy recommendation, which is pretty, reading it now, pretty strong stuff. Yeah, it's t it's today it's terrifying. In fact, it's, it's, in what, it's inhuman. It's against what we would call human rights. It's all the things we say no to today. Yep. But 
he felt it was necessary. Right. Uh, and uh, this, uh, I was, I was uh, reading up on, on, on some material this afternoon. I came across, I didn't know this thing existed. Uh, we now have the, the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. <laughs> uh, we, their, their motto, may we live long and die out. It, it was started by a guy called Le, uh, Les Knight in the US in 1991. And uh, yes, he's advocating a gradual human extinction. He, he reckons we should check out and, and give other organisms a chance. Let something evolve up and take our place. Yeah, exactly. But maybe maybe they'll just find out that self determination and intelligence wasn't so cool after all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a, we, well, we've got, we, and it, it's 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 a it's a big debate uh, amongst social scientists, amongst policymakers. Uh, I think the, the voluntary human extinction movement is slightly tongue in cheek, but uh, we have the, we have the Optimum Population Trust, which now calls itself Population Matters. Uh, with uh, figurehead David Attenborough being uh, being a strong advocate, calling for for control and regulation of, of population and stronger efforts to arrive at, at at some sort of optimum population. Now, what what that would be is another interesting. What, what is question. interesting though is, of course, family planning has been very successful worldwide now even you know the concepts of birth control have got to a lot further around the world than people sort of seem to realize it has the problem is uh, that I, evidence suggests that that states trying to control people's family size is notoriously difficult either way so if you think uh, the, the, the france had a, a set of very pronatal policies uh, it, throughout the 1930s 40s and 50s it had the coup de la famine in 1939 which did all sorts of things it, it banned contraceptives uh, that was revoked in 1960s i think uh, subsidized holidays for, for for large families offered incentives for mothers to to stay at home and look after children financial incentives so you have those pronatal policies. I mean, Ceausescu's Romania uh, is a communist Romania is another example. On the antinatalist side, we have China's one child policy. We also have India between 1975 and 1977 had all sorts of propaganda and monetary incentives to try and convince uh, people to get sterilized. So they offered uh, vasectomies for men with financial incentives. But the evidence is that actually the things that end up shaping family choice tend to be cultural, political and economic factors. This is where the, the political ecologist in me comes out again. It's, it's, it's having, uh, having um, a high enough wage, it's, it's female education, it, those sorts of softer cultural political factors that end up uh, enabling people to make a choice either way. So actually uh, often it's something that states can do very little about. And without saying who they are, of course, you want to get the right people in your population to have the kids. You don't want just one subsection. So it, if it was only the wealthy can afford to have children, that will cause other political and uh, social problems, presumably. Well, that's it's the very slippery slope that we go down if we start to talk about state-governed population control. Now, if you think it's not that far be before you get to, to, to the eugenics programs uh, of, of, uh, of the Nazi party. Well, uh, didn't UCL have a eugenics department it's, back Yes. Yeah, you know, it was worldwide. So it's, um, I think that's what, it certainly makes me uncomfortable, uh, yeah. that question of state control. And again, why I found as a, as a when I was starting to, to think that I would go down the ecological uh, environmentalist routes, why um, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley uh, was such a fascinating book, because it's exactly that sort of state controlled family planning uh, and population growth that, that, that Aldous Huxley was talking about in his book. So yeah, it's, a, it's the thought experiment of what would happen if we did this. And right. I mean, you've got a lo lovely comment here. Is it a dystopia or a utopia? Yes. 
quite um you can read it either way i mean i'm sure i'm sure reading it that, that, that Aldous huxley meant it as a dystopia but in a big in the beginning you, you, he paints a, a world that that is uh, stable and and safe and where people everybody knows their place and he's very much playing on that idea as a utopia but of course with the characters coming through you realize that actually there are an awful lot of big sacrifices to be made for that sort of stability in terms of personal choice freedom individual freedom individual rights um it's that balance that i find in fiction fascinating fiction's brilliant i mean that's what we love when we do the show is we get to find that people can explore social models just and have fun with them as it were in fiction and then we can learn a lot from it by just debating and discussing what happens in those books and i i do remember all just actually did actually go back didn't he and he wrote an essay great, in the 1950s i think it's 1958 yes yeah so he, i mean even he used he it. did and and it, actually one of his comments in his essay was that he <laughs> he was amazed by uh, the fact that his predictions seemed to be coming true uh, not predictions, but it seemed to be becoming reality quicker than he thought. I mean, I think Brave New World is set in roughly 2500 AD. <laughs> and, and he remarked, actually, uh, that uh, a lot of things that he wrote about were coming true. I, mean, it's, uh, I, was, I reread it again this week, and it's, it's remarkable. I'd forgotten that actually he has a, a, a mass consumption message well, in the book. So citizens are encouraged to consume as much as possible. Why? It keeps people employed. In the context of, of, of Britain trying to kickstart its economy by encouraging consumption the the environmentalist in me always thinks oh, hang on should we be using this opportunity to, to think of a new model for an economy or do we push this relentless model of consumption because it keeps people employed and they, there's a nice quote here that he has he talked about uh, ending is better than mending <laughs> uh, the idea that actually you shouldn't mend and make do because that's stealing people's jobs actually what you should be is a good little consumer and consume as much as you possibly can to keep the wheels of the machinery going so he didn't just have a population message i think he's a very prescient consumerist environmental message in there as well and in fact when, when they go and visit the, the the native reserve one of the things that the the, the discussed uh, discussed um uh, lenina uh, I think he was being quite coy. There's Bernard Marx and Lenina as, as two of the main characters. Uh, and uh, one of the things that disgusts her the most is that these people are mending and making do. And she <laughs> finds it absolutely dis preposterous and disgusting. Well, I think that's a good point to move on to our next track. And I think this will be one for the voluntary human extinction movement. Team reporters baffle Trump, Kevin Kraft, look at that little plane, fine, then 
That was the It's the End of the World as We Know It, and I'm joined by Ivan Scales on the science of fiction. Uh, so the line you quite like from that was, slash and burn return, listen to yourself churn. Yeah, and, and another another cheery song, It's the End of the World as We Know It. At least it was upbeat. It was upbeat. Uh, give if you not that. the message. Uh, yeah, I picked, I, I picked that one uh, mostly for that lyric, slash and burn. It's what I... Did uh, it's what I studied for my PhD. Be careful, almost sound like I say it's what you do. It's what I do <laughs> in my allotment. Um, yeah, I, I this was my PhD topic. I, I worked on. I, I prefer to call it Sweden cultivation. Slash and burn is a very aggressive term. It tends to be used as a very derogative term uh, by policymakers, conservationists, with the implication that it's an irrational process. You know, slashing and burning. It sounds aggressive, certainly. And in fact, there's evidence for it going back in the tropics at least 10,000 years. There's evidence in some part of Central Africa it being practiced continuously for up to a 1,000 years. So it's not an inherently destructive form of agriculture. Um, What it involves, very basically, is that you you have a piece of forest, you cut the forest during the dry season, allowing it to dry out, and you, you burn it. And what that does is, A, it allows light to reach the soil, so important in in forest areas where not much light reaches the ground but also more importantly it uh, releases a very nutrient rich ash and you get certainly where I worked in western Madagascar the the dry forests you can cultivate for two three years they grow mostly maize there you get a very good crop but then the nutrients are exhausted and in theory what you do then is you, you abandon the land you leave it fallow and as long as that fallow period is long enough, then the vegetation regrows and the nutrients return to the soil. But where I worked in, in Western Madagascar, that process can take probably 40, 50 years. So it's, it's almost an alternative to crop rotation in Europe. Yeah. 
but different time scale and different process. Exactly. Uh, it is, in theory, supposed to be a rotational system. And um, I think in the more humid tropics in Madagascar, you can return to areas quicker than that, probably 15, 20, 25 years, but still a long time. So uh, as long as population density is fairly low, uh, as long as you can allow the forest to regenerate, it is, in, in theory, a perfectly sustainable system. The problem comes when, for some reason, that fallow period has to be reduced or, or, or removed completely. So uh, population growth, for example, particularly migration, uh, one of the big problems where I work in Western Madagascar is a lot of migrants coming in from the very impoverished south. The south is particularly arid. Where I work is semi-arid. So you have a lot of pressure coming in from migrants uh, going into the forest area and clearing forest. So that's when you start to get problems with, with uh, sustainability. So my PhD, uh, I, I spent four years trying to better understand the drivers of deforestation. The received wisdom is that, uh, so when you talk to conservationists and policymakers, the received wisdom is that it's a process largely driven by necessity and population growth. So Malthus appears once again. He's always there in the background. Uh, so the, the, the interpretations are largely Malthusian. And what I showed by using a, a variety of methods. So I went back 100 years. Uh, I did a lot of work in the French colonial archives and um, I, I dug out statistics of exports, maize exports. And what you can do is you, you can have a rough proxy. You know that roughly for every two tonnes of maize produced, you need to clear about a hectare of forest. So by reconstructing the export stats, what you can do is get a rough proxy of how much forest was being cleared in any year, in any given year. And uh, then I move on. In the 1950s, you start to get aerial photography. So you can start to have photos of the forest and you can see where deforestation is happening. And then once you get to the 70s, you have satellite imagery from, from NASA Landsat, which is what I was using to, to then measure forest cover change from the 70s onwards. So I, I had so a, there's archive photos of these areas? In the 1950s, there are. Yeah. So before, but before aerial photography, you, only have to, you can only go on these proxy statistics of, of imports and exports. So by doing that, I, I got a longer view than anybody had ever done of deforestation in that part of Madagascar and when you do that you get some some pretty interesting results so so rather than being driven purely by population growth or migration actually a lot of deforestation over the last hundred years has been driven by commodity cash crops so it's not poverty it's actually wealth creation uh, and wealth creation for a particular group of people that's been driving deforestation you get these booms and busts in particular commodities maize maize being the, the, the biggest one and um, that's, that's, that was the main finding of my PhD. Um, so it was really using a, an interdisciplinary approach, which is what political ecologists try and do, drawing on these multiple sources of data to try and triangulate and, and better understand a, a, a human environment system, rather than doing what non-political ecologists might do, which is just assume a priori that this is a, 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 a pressure driven by, by human population. Yeah. So, I mean... Do we see other things today? Because a lot of people, when we were talking earlier about offsetting carbon footprint, do we see places getting ecologically damaged where they have to grow trees just to offset the West's carbon footprint or biofuels and all these other things that sort of spark new industries? Yeah, so, there, so my, my, my latest research project, which I just started last year, is looking at biofuels and the interplay between energy security, food security in, in West Africa. So I, I was out in the Gambia in Senegal last year and um, the, the Sahel, this is the Sahel, it, it's another semi-arid environment. It's an area that struggles a lot with food security. Yet at the same time, uh, there are deals being done uh, 
between governments and and uh, and foreign companies, foreign investors who are leasing or buying vast areas of land to to convert to biofuel cultivation. So you have the, I mean, that, that's going back to the, the simplicity that I mentioned earlier of of part of sixties and seventies environmentalism, where we had one clear problem. We talked about DDT or, or CFCs. The problem here is that you have these multiple environmental problems overlapping. So you try and solve one problem: our dependence on fossil fuels and, and carbon through biofuels, and you end up creating another one by, for example, clear felling tropical rainforest to grow palm oil or, or soya bean, right? Uh, or, or, or converting fairly marginal land that's used by pastoralists in the Sahel to try and grow th- uh, a plant called Drotrophococcus, which is its, its fruit, its oil is converted to, to biofuel. So that's what's so complex uh, uh, about modern environmental problems is often they involve the, the, these overlapping uh, issues. Uh, that's what I'm doing. So I'm trying to, at the moment, this new project is, is looking at the scale of these investments. So how much land is being turned over to biofuels? And what does that mean for food security? What does that mean for households who struggle? I mean, this is chronic, chronic hunger in these areas. And uh, trying to make more sense of that. Okay. Clearing the black 
to that was Broken Household Appliance National Forest by Granddaddy. Uh, we're just saying whilst we were off air, uh, while music was playing, that that sort of reminds me of Wally with the huge mountains of rubbish and this little robot going around them, but then you admitted that you generally try to avoid ecology movies on the ground that you might get annoyed with them. <laughs> I do, yeah. I, I, I see them, as, there's broadly two types. You've got the eco-catastrophe movies, I'm, I'm thinking of Mad Max and I'm thinking of The Day After Tomorrow and even Waterworld, which I never saw, but I hear got panned. Was that the, the Kevin Costner film? I think that was a bit sort of post-apocalyptic. It, it, it was a bit excessive how much water seemed to have come out of the ice caps. It's not, there's not that much there. So, I haven't seen it. I'm not going to comment on it. I, I think um, there was one island left. I think right. That's, I think Everest was about all that. Was all, that, was, that was all that left of the planet. So that I, I tend to avoid those... Um, and then on the other side, you, I, I think you, with environmental movies, you, so either you get eco-catastrophes or romantic films, sort of romanticising wildlife, mostly African wildlife. So I'm thinking of The Lion King. I'm thinking Madagascar as well, uh, which uh, I had to watch since that's, <laughs> that's the area, part of the world I specialise in. Was that research? But it was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it, it irritated me immensely. In a way, it shouldn't have done, because it, it's... I mean, when you've got talking animals, you're clearly in the realms of, of fiction. But what, what I sat there in the cinema being incredibly bugged by the fact that they, they had baobab trees in a rainforest. And then the ecologist in me going, well, this is preposterous. They're a dry, deciduous forest tree. I mean, that's why they've got big trunks. They store water. They couldn't be in a rainforest forest so that was that and then it continued and i sat there thinking well the fusa have you seen madagascar oh, not the whole way through. so the fusa are, are, are the baddies they're a type of um, of predator they're relatively closely related to the to mongooses and civic cats and i sat there thinking well that's again that's zoologically completely incorrect they don't hunt in packs they're solitary i've <laughs> seen them and then it goes on from there and you look at the, the, the combinations of lemurs they've got. They have the king of the lemurs vo voiced by um, Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, and uh, I think I have got the right brother. Simon Baron Cohen is the, is the fellow at Trinity, isn't he? Yeah. And Sasha Baron Cohen is Ali, Ali G. G. Yeah. Right, I have got the white, right, Baron Cohen. Yes, yeah, so Ali G. The voice of Ali G voices the, the king of the lemurs. And again, you look at the species assemblages and they just don't make any sense. You've got species that are just not biogeographically together. So I, I think I couldn't get past that, which probably tells me I need to get a life. <laughs> It is quite amusing though, because you think that this is for kids. It isn't that hard to go to a someone like yourself and go, "Well, what animal should we use? What should we?" Do? And actually, they probably did. And at some point, they decided this looks prettier, or you know, why? Because it's a chance to educate people. Exactly. Should should they be mutually exclusive? Can we entertain and educate at the same time? And clearly, we well, clearly and we were failed with the case of Madagascar. We total failure. I think people still most people don't know where it is. Uh, I only know because of risk board games. So, as, as a geographer, I think I should have started the movie with a map uh, <laughs> pointing out that it was three hundred and four hundred kilometres off the east coast of, of East Africa. That yeah. would have been good. We should let you make movies. Um, so, yeah, that that song we just listened to. Uh, the line you've pulled out of that is "Sit on the toaster like a rock. No need to worry about a shock. All the microwaves are dead." Just like a salamander said, the refrigerators house the frogs, the conduit is a ho the hollow lock. Yeah, another another cheery song. I picked this one to try and move the discussion away from, from, from population growth. Uh, I guess granddaddy there putting their, their finger on the, on the real issue for me, which is the intensity of resource consumption and, and mass consumption. 
uh, and how not just population growth is the problem, but actually about economic growth, consumerism and mass consumption. And that's one of the areas that I also work on in, in my research is the relationship between not only poverty and natural resources, but uh, economic growth and natural resource use. And, and how does how do environmental values, for example, change under particular political, cultural, economic systems? So, the, for example, one of the ideas that's often bandied about is uh, this idea of an environmental Kuznets curve. Um, Kuznets was, a, it was an economist, and actually his model was originally about um, wage inequality. But anyway, some environmental uh, economists came up with the idea that maybe his model... Imagine, imagine uh, we have GDP on, on the x-axis, and we have environmental damage on the y-axis. And the theory is uh, an inverted U-shape. Okay. Right. So as GDP grows initially, you see a huge increase in environmental degradation. Now you look at the the history of the industrial revolution, and you can see why that might be. Right. So we have factories, industrialization, more pollution, but also more people consuming more things. And this is why, presumably, we often see other countries now going to a certain industrial rev- similar, not right. the same as ours, because times moved on. But this sure. idea of burning resources to develop as quickly exactly. as possible. So we look at India and we look at China and we see exactly that pattern. And uh, they are those, uh, let's call them ecological modernizers. And, and the theory is called ecological modernization. And the idea there is that actually up to a point, then you get GDP, is it GDP continues to increase? The theory is then it starts to level off. So we get to the top of that inverted U. And then hopefully, uh, as GDP growth continues, we start to reduce environmental impact. And the theory there is that, well, all sorts of things start to kick in. First of all, I mean, on a very basic level, you could say we can start to afford to care. Once we've uh, satiated our basic material desires, we can start to worry about having a clean, clean water, clean lakes, clean atmosphere to breathe. So governments might start to regulate. So if we look at atmospheric pollution in London, that's a very good example of that being borne out by evidence. If you think of the Clean Air Act in the 1950s, if you think of the smogs that were there, and we suddenly decide to do something about it, and the, the, the problem gets better. Well, something like the smog's also quite political, though, with the fact people were dying in the streets. Right. So again, so it's that, it's that combination of political and economic factors. Then the, the other idea is that perhaps as soon as people are satiated, then they might consider about the, the type of things that they buy. So if you think of people shifting to, to fair trade products or, or eco products, eco washing up liquid. So the theory is that the, 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 the political economic factors and technology as well can help to then reduce our impact. So that's what's, that's what's called an environmental Kuznets curve. Empirically, the jury's out. So there are good examples of things following that pattern, if you think of a lot of atmospheric pollution. But then if you think of CO2, for example, on a global scale, certainly shows no sign of slowing down. So it depends on what pollutant you're talking about. But certainly the evidence is that uh, as, as, as economic growth goes up, resource consumption and intensive consumption goes up as well and actually if we if we look at the history of, of 20th century environmental problems for me certainly that's been probably the biggest driver of environmental degradation so if we look at somewhere like china which is sort of earlier on this curve and at the moment there's massive problems with beijing and pollution are are we like to see the population starting to push for reform on that or is it already happening because everyone talks about how smoggy and how filthy the place is but watching china has been fascinating um because uh, a lot of people have made their displeasure uh, clear and well the olympics drew focus to it right exactly and it, it becomes a it becomes a political issue and um now the question of, of how much influence that will really have is um, is an interesting one uh with a strong state 
So that question of, 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 of how much can the state do? How much can we expect individuals to do? Going back to that question of individual choice is a, is a really interesting one. Uh, I mean, if we, if we go back to CFCs, that was a set of countries agreeing to uh, curb these things and replace them with something else, and that worked. So that, that legislative approach worked very well. But when we deal with something like carbon, because it's so embedded in the things that we do, uh, it becomes very difficult to think of a simple fix like well, that. Well, America pulled out of Kyoto, didn't it? Right. Um, or did they even go into? Did they, ever they, they they didn't go into Kyoto. Yeah. They, I don't. They, they signed Kyoto. Um, so that that goes to the, how difficult and intractable these these problems are when they get so they pervade everything that we do on a day to day basis. But then, I, if I remember correctly, figures actually say that America is doing something about it, even though they're not in the Kyoto Agreement. Yeah, I mean, going back to, to the, the drivers of environmental degradation, I think the, the big problem is that um, I don't think in a democratic uh, country, for example, that, that a, a, a set of policies or promises, pledges to reduce people's affluence and material consumption, it's never going to be a vote winner, is it? No. We're, we're going to, you're going to have fewer things and you're going to have to consume less. Uh, it's, it's never going to, to, to really work, uh, which is going to hopefully lead us nicely to, uh, to our, our book.
So that was Idiotech by Radiohead. And, uh, yeah, for the people who are having a little bit of trouble trying to work out what Tom York is saying, uh, we're not scaremongering, we're not scaremongering, this is really happening. Uh, so Ivan? The reason I picked Rod, yeah, this is, this is really taking us forward from the 60s and 70s environmentalism that we talked about at the start of the show, uh, towards, uh, environmentalism that has to deal with, um, I think a more cynical media, certainly, um, sceptical people uh, and this is that balance between infam- uh, informing people and that balance of this is we're not just scaremongering this is really happening and uh, I think that's much more the environmentalism that, that I'm familiar with uh, from, from the mid 90s onwards Yeah I mean global warming we've mentioned quite a bit today but that's something where you've got people in the state still arguing it's sort of almost a conspiracy by the government yet at the same time if you look at the graphs and you you know, really look at them rather than select a small data. It's clearly going up, right? But uh, it, this is this is really where political ecology comes into its own in, in trying to understand the political dimensions. It's it's not a surprise when we think about the interest groups uh, and the stakeholders in these sorts of issues. When we think of the, the bodies, uh, fossil fuel, oil bodies that that, that um, put pressure on the American government. I mean, there are a lot of people with a lot of interests. Um, in climate change, so it's not a surprise really that it's it's more complex, more contested, uh, more controversial. And um, it reminds me of, of, of my own work actually on puts me on the sceptical side. Not for climate science, it's actually going back to my work on Madagascar. There's a very there's a very powerful idea at the heart of an environmental policy making in Madagascar, which is that it's an island that's lost ninety percent of its forest. And actually the evidence is that that's, that's never been the case. That's not the case. Um, so there's a stat. Whenever you read pretty much anything, any scientific paper on Madagascar will, will open up with this statistic that Madagascar is 90% deforested. And it's a shocking statistic. And it, it presses all the right buttons. Catastrophe, alarm, there's something urgent that we need to do. Scaremongering. And actually, if you look at the evidence from all sorts of places, paleoecology, so reconstructing past vegetation, past biomes, all the way to animal fossils, the, the evidence is actually at no point over the last 20,000 years has Madagascar ever been entirely forested. So humans arrive about 2,000 years ago on Madagascar and do start to transform uh, its landscapes um, and do put pressure on, on animal populations. But... Um, there is no evidence that it was entirely forested at any point. So that's one of the things that fascinates me is this balance between awareness building, fact, the environment, uh, scaremongering and awareness raising. And the fact people just feel the government will lie to them. Yes. Um, I don't know what that says about us. I don't know where that distrust comes from. I suppose some of it comes from the fact that we... It's just a normal human trait to believe stuff that agrees with what you're saying and... and discard things that contradict your beliefs. Yes. I mean, that's cognitive, cognitive distance. There is. I, I think with environmental issues, especially something like climate change, there is an added problem, which is that uh, a lot of our impacts are felt uh, very far away from us. Um, so it's actually, it was Karl Marx hundreds of years ago who, who came up with the idea of metabolic rift. And what he was saying is that as populations got more urban through the Industrial Revolution and proletarianization, that actually we got further and further away from the systems, ecosystems that sustain us. And that's a problem, right? Because if you have a, a piece of cod or place on your plate, you haven't seen where it's come from. You haven't seen the fact that probably half the catch that was caught was thrown straight back over the edge. And I think that's one another one of the big challenges of, of building environmental awareness is that we are so very far away from the impacts that we have these days, being largely urban populations. 
Well, presumably the UK can no longer feed itself with its own resources. I'm not sure what the statistic is. I think it's something like we produce 60, 60 to 70%. So we're not food sovereign. I'm not sure many countries are food sovereign. But you have all these incredible exchanges of food commodities across the world. I mean, the global, the global food system is mind-boggling. <laughs> well, I think at that point it's probably a good time to bring this all to an end. So thank you for coming along, Ivan. Thank it's you very much for having me. It's been great talking to you. Uh, next week we should have... Helen Arnie along, uh, geek songstress that she is, and uh, to play you out we've got this track from the Pixies There was a guy An underwater guy who could troll the sea Got killed by 10 million Sludge from New York and New Jersey. Devil is six, and the devil is six, the devil.